welcome back to State of Mind. I'm Grace Kingswell and I'm a nutritional therapist. And this is my series, second series, all about health, wellness, feeling good, and also sustainability, a concept very close to my heart. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. I am so unbelievably excited for you all to hear this episode with Dr. Adam Gill. I know I shouldn't really have favourites, but I love this chat with Adam so much for the insight he shares into human behaviour, communities and the health and wellness industry and so much more. He sheds some serious light onto questions such as why we are all so obsessed with health right now, why do we care what each other are eating, how can we use behaviour change and ethnography to positively impact environmental change? The culture of action and reward that leads us all to the chocolate bar at the end of the day, and so much more. So Adam is an ethnographer and the founder of Wilding, which is a creative ad agency using ethnography and behaviour change to improve health. Ethnography is a bit like anthropology, if you've heard of that. It's sort of the study of people and why we act in certain ways. Adam has a PhD in community participation theory and has worked in the NHS and the health and wellness sector to help clients understand more and action insights to improve services for patients. He has recently founded the creative advertising health and wellness agency, Wilding, which is determined to challenge unhealthy behaviours and to produce relevant and meaningful creative advertising campaigns for clients. He is all about disruption and what's on the periphery and doing things just a little bit differently. I think this episode will answer some of your health industry hang-ups as it certainly answered mine. So without further ado, here is Dr. Adam Gill on State of Mind. So Adam, it's so nice to have you on the podcast. It's very nice to be here. Um, and as you know, I always, I gave you a little bit of preparation for this. I always start with the same question for everyone in season two, which is what was the last thing you did that positively impacted your health? So the last, so, so this morning I practiced my Runa Megan and that oh. that is a, um, a shamanic um, set of stretches um, based on various runes um, and associated with a, uh, a shamanic healing course I'm doing at the moment. I love that. Uh, closely followed by a, a bit of energy healing under a willow tree in Victoria Park. I hugged a tree this morning. <laughs> <laughs> I think the, the, runners probably, the runners probably thought I was quite weird, but, you know, I don't care. It was a lovely willow tree and it felt quite special. Amazing. Um can you just tell me what shamanic healing is? Because it's not something I've really dabbled in. Yeah, I'm learning. I've done, uh, it's a year-long course. Um, apparently uh, other famous people who I nearly said uh, have done it. They have other podcasts too. Um, it's all about um, connecting with our kind of deeper energies and understanding how uh, interconnected we are with nature. Um, at the moment, we're really learning a lot about what the runes are. And yeah. what they mean, but also about how different trees have different qualities, different energies, and things like that. Um, and so, really, effectively, this course is about kind of connection with connecting with the nature that's around us mm. here in the UK. Um, so, it's a really beautiful course. Amazing. Okay, so diving into ethnography, which right. is your specialist subject, um, I am really excited to have you on the podcast because I feel like this is going to be the answer to so many questions that I always ask everyone else and things that I think about a lot myself, which is basically why are we 
the way we are and yeah. why especially are we living in this like why are we so obsessed with firstly wellness why mm. are we so obsessed with what we what we're eating what everyone else is eating why are we watching people on youtube telling us what they're eating and all of these questions and i want to drill down into that with you and also talk a lot about sustainability and and impacting change so ethnography tell us what it is ethnography is uh Effectively, it's a, it's a word of two parts, a Greek word, ethno meaning people, ethnography meaning study. So effectively, it's a study of people. Um, it's a method of research used by anthropologists um, more, more generally. And it's a, in its earliest form, it was effectively going to other cultures and tribes and seeing how people lived and why they lived. It's got a bit of a bad rap because that kind of led the way to some colonialism back then. Right. Um, but more recently, um, ethnographers are people who study people, their experience. Experience is sometimes called a phenomena. Mm. There are different theorists who talked about phenomenology and understanding people's uh, experiences. So that could just be how, uh, for example, you decide to make a smoothie in the morning and what that culture means for different people. So we okay. study people's experiences and then kind of drill down into their habits, their rituals, and then understand a bit more psychologically around their desires or um, what, what, what meaning that they've created. Essentially, um, a great um, anthropologist, ethnographer called Clifford Geertz wrote, Culture is made up of uh, webs of significance that man himself has spun. So it's all about how we've created meaning around our lives because mm. effectively, you know, we have signs and symbols in our lives and, and uh, meanings that we've constructed ourselves. That's yeah. how we've come to understand the world, which is why I love the um, juxtaposition of, uh, of chaos and order that exists in nature because as much as we try to create order, we're really disordered and, and quite messy. Yeah, amazing. So it's kind of like, how we've structured our lives to mean something rather yeah. than that meaning existing already. And, and and also to understand, yeah, it's not to make judgments on anyone's meaning. Um, and, you know, I, I study different people in, in different places, different times to understand what things they do and why they do, but also the meaning they create, the things that they surround themselves with. Mm. So much of my work as a kind of more commercial ethnographer yeah. is helping brands to um, understand their customers, what their customers do, what cultures they belong to, but how does that brand operate in that culture? What does that mean to the customer? And and what other cultures can they service for the greater good? That's the whole point of why I do what I do. Okay. And tell us how you became so fascinated in this in the first place. I mean, I think we are all fascinated by each other anyway, but it's quite a specialist yeah. subject to go and do a, a PhD in. Yeah. So yeah, how did it all come about? Yeah, it's quite a specialist. And, and I suppose my journey with it really centred around a character trait that I've had since being a young boy. Um, growing up in inner city Birmingham, I was always on my bike, you know, asking people why they did what they did. You're you're a priest. What's that about? Why did you do that? How did you receive your calling? What does it mean? And, you know... To, to Is that... Sorry to interrupt you. Is that because you couldn't figure out yourself what you were about? You didn't know what you wanted to do. So you're trying to figure out how has everyone else got to where they are? Yeah, good question. I Because um, I think that's something that a lot of young people struggle with these days is that, and I certainly found this myself, is that we go through this education system that's so structured for yeah. us and we're always focused on the next goal and whether that's like achieving your GCSEs and then getting your A-levels and going to university, it's like, it's really easy to know what your life's like until you leave university because you've always had those, those big things that you've got to, achieve every term or whatever and then suddenly you're out on your own and and I think people 
panic at that mm, stage. Yeah. It's like, well, what am I supposed to do now? 100%. I think I, I, I've always been, um, so when I was a, a young lad, I was obsessively interested in different things, cultures, people, all sorts. Uh, the reason being, there's just so much to learn. In fact, at school, I, I was, I would probably have now been classed with a kind of an ADHD. I was so excited and over the top. In fact, when we left primary school, the teachers bought me a book of answers. They said, you've got so many questions. Here's a book of answers. There were never enough answers in that, yeah. in that book for me. Um, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do other than to work with people. And, and, I didn't, I, and I had various careers that worked with people until I eventually found this method to understand people on a deep level. Mm. That really connects with a bit of a spiritual journey for myself, which we could get into a bit later. But to really connect with people and understand them, I think, is probably the most beautiful and, and greatest gift of all, actually. And yeah. ethnography really allows that. Um, I never really knew what I wanted to do for years and years. And that's sort of what led me to university, really. I went and kind of followed this um, train of um, inquiry around why do people participate? Why do people not? What what enables people to get involved and not? I kind of noticing some of the kind of uh, inequalities and, and noticing that, that there were um, certain things going on that, that enabled and disabled people from getting involved. Um, I um, It is tied with, with a kind of a spiritual journey as well. And I... When I was coming to the end of my PhD, which <clears throat> was an ethnography conducted in Venezuela, uh, understanding why people participated in the in the revolution at that time, mm. <clears throat> I um, started to have a thought about what I could do back home in the UK and what, what, how I could help. Um, and I, I came across a talk on the Do Lectures by a guy called Alistair McIntosh who wrote a book called Soil and Soul. And he read out a poem that he hadn't written, but somebody that he knew had written. And I'm going to read it out now because it kind of helped me to start. Uh, it, it was a sort of an early uh, seed for what wilding is now, the thing that yeah. I've set up now to drive all this stuff. And I'm not a poet, but I'll try and do this justice. No, I love it. Go ahead. Child, go, break off from the herd. Go beyond the lowlands. Leave the valley of shed antlers. The elders are sick. It is your time now. And that's called Listen to the Wind, uh, written by somebody called Ben McCormack, Baird of Craig and Cult. Now, I don't know who that is, but what that spoke to me quite loudly about, and having watched Alistair's talk, was that, you know, the old ways, are, the new ways are broken. Yeah. And the old ways need to become the new ways in the sense that, um, and, and this goes some way to answer um, about why people are obsessed with their health and, mm, and what I they eat that. and what they do. And they're old ways, right? Yeah. We're, we're taking more control around our lives in, in a world which has become um, atomized. We've become atomized. Uh, perhaps our choices are, are so globalized, we've sort of lost our connections and cultures. So as an ethnographer, um, you know, that that's really... Um, interesting to me to understand where people are mm. to help people as best I can using the, the methods and, and modes uh, of creativity and behavior change and strategy to to create experiences for people to come back into their world yeah and I think we are we are seeing that more and more aren't we within the wellness space that people yeah. people are coming to the forefront now who are pioneering or not pioneering but they're they are peddling a return to ancient methods, whether that be ancient methods of yeah. eating and tuning into our bodies or ancient methods of moving. Yeah. Um, there's really cool people um, in that space doing things around like, you know, who, who never use chairs, um, that yeah. they just squat, they're teaching their children to, to do the same and, you know, to not wear shoes and kind of getting back to how we were basically yeah. without everything that we have in our lives now, whether that be technology or 
transport or sitting in a car or, you know, at a desk and being hunched over and, you know, and, and going back to kind of grassroots in terms of food and yeah. making it less complicated. Yeah. I mean, just look at things. I mean, one of the things that pops into my mind as we were talking, I really love the work of Wim Hof. Yes, the Ice me Man. too. And I love this podcast that I'd heard of him more recently. And what he's talking about is, it, it, it sounds quite extreme, but, but ultimately you could boil it down to the fact that he's talking about being in touch with the body's potential. Mm. And we're starting to look at that. How can we be in touch with our bodies, our body's potential? What can we do? Rather than depend on external factors. Mm. And um, many, you know, I'd in no way discredit the pharmaceutical industries. I think that drugs do work and they do amazing work. However, there's lots we can do ourselves. There's medicines available to us as herbs. Uh, Nature's a tonic. Mm. Um, You know, fitness and and, and how we connect with ourselves, I think, are all medicines. Oh, God, I love this because this is exactly what I'm about. Yeah. So important. I think you're totally right. There's obviously a place for modern medicine. And I myself have experienced that Mm. place where Mm. I needed um, life-changing surgery a few years ago. I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd be if I hadn't had it, but I certainly notice in the aftermath that I'm, I wouldn't say worse off for it, but it caused a lot Mm. of other things to to crop up, which I've only been able to heal naturally Mm. with like nature and natural medicine and naturopathy and Chinese medicine Mm. and these ancient systems that actually listen to how your body works as a whole and not just take one isolated symptom out of context and just treat that. It's about learning how we operate as humans from on every level, basically. And I spent, um, so when I finished my my PhD, I ended up working in social enterprise um, and wanted to uh, make a difference. And so I did some work in that. And I ended up working in in healthcare, in our national health service here. as a, a kind of an innovation and transformation type consultant, I did research uh, and then I looked at how we can make services work better for patients and things like that. Okay. And, and in that world, you know, what I saw, you know, God bless the NHS, I absolutely think it's an amazing thing. And uh, it, it achieves miracles on a daily basis, but it's a big machine. And therefore, it can be uh, limited in, in how innovative that it can be at the mm. moment. And 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 it has to do what it can do on its minimal resources. Therefore, some of the more, uh, I suppose people would say, radical ideas, the things that you and I are talking about, about self-care, yeah. because they aren't studied in perhaps the same way, although they are more now, um, or because they can't be measured, it's... It, it isn't as um, recognised or, or, or um, promoted in, in that system. Yeah. Um, so, so you know, I'm really interested in working with the brands who sit on the outside of that, mm. who are looking to disrupt positively yeah. how we do health and wellness to inform and influence the NHS so that it can do better later mm. on. And uh, kind of hoping that I'm not going to, you know, cause any issues by saying this, I take real offence at, well... There's a big movement now within health and wellness for evidence-based advice, which I think is is fantastic because I think if you have a huge platform on social media, then 100% you need to be responsible for the the advice you're putting out and it needs to be uh, based in evidence. I completely agree with that. What... What angers me is is that there's certain kind of trends and stuff within wellness now, like, for example, I'll just take the, the example of celery juice, that are being taken so out of context. I mean, it's it's obviously helping. A lot of people are drinking celery juice on an empty stomach every morning and they're seeing re- real benefits in their health. I do not see why that's a bad thing mm. and I, I don't see why that needs to be called out and said 
and oh, it's just, it's 95% water. It can't be good for you. Your body is, you're your best doctor at the end yeah. of the day. Like, you know how you feel. And if something makes you feel good, then like, right on, like, mm. do it. Yeah. Same as, you know, jumping into some cold water. Yes, it might be crazy. If it makes you feel good, do it. Like, tune into your body. And going back to what you were saying <clears throat> about, like, the NHS being a huge machine and, there are so many people doing good work yeah. on the periphery, mm. and but they're quite often seen as like quacks or, mm. you know, that they don't have a, a degree in, in medical yeah. sciences. But actually, maybe they've been treating people for 20 years in yeah. their own practice, in their own way. And they've, and they've <laughs> helped people with things like Crohn's or, mm. you know, these these illnesses and, and kind of 21st century problems, which actually modern medicine doesn't really know how to solve yet. Yeah. Because yeah. because it's there's no there's no direct cause and there's no direct um, answer. It's more like so many different lifestyle factors have led led you to this place. And please just take this and see if it helps. Yeah. But actually, what you need is like someone that's going to help you on every single level. Whether that's wellness, whether that's like encouraging you to get outside and get blue light into your eyes that's really healing and all these kind of like more wishy-washy things that I think so I'm ranting because I'm really passionate about it but no, it's good yeah it's it's so valuable mm. to us now because of the way that we've come to live our life in the 21st century I mean <clears throat> if you think back 10 years ago who'd have thought that the doctors were prescribing things like pilates or yoga mm. or um some doctors in, in Scotland now are prescribing the outdoors. It's fantastic that it's going that way. Yeah. I just think we need more of it. No, I agree. And I, th I do feel that um, we're on a bit of a curve more generally. I think that conversations that are had within um, groups or communities that, that perhaps wouldn't normally have spoken about certain things, like the amount of eat, meat we eat or, yeah. um, uh, or you know, or the sorts of the amounts of plants that we eat, or things like that. I think there are lots of conversations entering into what you know the so-called mainstream um, for people to start to consider their health a little bit more in ways that ten years ago people would have said, you know, get back to Glastonbury. Yeah. There's no way that I'm going to do that. So I do think it's emerging, but there's a lot of work to be done, mm. and you know that there are. Um, organizations and businesses and movements that, that are going on that I think are starting to motivate people. Younger generations are way more clued up about the impact of their health. Now, totally. <clears throat> that, that can be seen as good or bad because what drives that? Sometimes it could be that, that those healthier choices are driven potentially by looking better mm. for a more Instagrammable world. Mm. Um, Sometimes it can be that people are just more aware of their health, but but I do think there's a conversation around um, more negative impacts of people changing their lifestyles to suit an image more than their own health. And, and sometimes we can be slipping more into mental illness and unwellness yeah. as a result of that. Yeah. And from your point of view as an ethnographer, how does this world of image that we're now living in play into health and wellness? Well, I mean... We're driven in this country largely by the commercial element of um, a product, for example. So if we're talking about wellness, if it's a service, perhaps they're, you know, it's slightly different. Wellness um, ticks various boxes from anything to do with maintaining fitness, 
to what we eat, to me- mental wellness, to being outdoors, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, I really like the work done by Rangan Chatterjee, Dr. Rangan yeah. Chatterjee's four pillar plan. I quite like mm-hmm. that. It, 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 you know, it puts it quite simply into four different camps, and you know, those are all things that we should be aware of. Um, what what I think is, you know, eth- ethnographically speaking, I think that the the rise of social media um, or social media in general is so normal for so many people who've sort of had it in much of their formative years that the image is perhaps the driving force for um, look, fitting a particular um, tick box mm. to feel okay. Yeah. And the amount of likes that you receive and, and um, the sorts of people that you aspire to, I don't think that always matches a healthy mental wellness. No. Um, and, and so I think we're sometimes in a danger of eating less and depending on other types of diets to look a certain way, but not to feel a certain way. Mm. I really believe that food and what we eat and what we do and outdoors and it should make us feel good. Yeah. Um, I think what we're really missing fundamentally is a community. Okay. I feel that community has, over the last, I don't know, 20 plus years, become less and less uh, aware. And I think that ultimately humans want to belong mm. and find a sense of belonging online. And it does exist. And there are fa- fantastic resources and communities on social and, and online as well. Um, and, and I certainly benefit from that whole world as well. Um, but but it can also mean that people are looking for communities that don't necessarily exist. They're quite transient and and don't include any physical contact that's either. Right. It's like a it's an online community rather than. Yeah. And I think as humans, we we need that physicality, don't we? Hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent. And and I, and I think that um, much of any of the strategies that I've worked in in health or wellness have generally been about building a community around something where people can come and connect and belong and own it. Mm. Because when people collect, uh, co- collectively get together, they, they, they take that idea forwards themselves yeah. because they can connect around something. Yeah. So, so I really think that in health and wellness that it, it, we need to generate more community as well for, for, for that lo- longevity. Which is what you're doing with We Are Wilding, because, I mean, tell us how it, how it started, but um, I came across We Are Wilding uh, quite recently when I went to one of the talks that um, Adam puts on. Um, they are monthly, third the third Thursday of every month. Third Wednesday. Third Wednesday yeah. of every month. Um, and it's fantastic. It's it's like a smaller version of one of these big wellness festivals that we have, yeah. like Balance or something, where you get great people on stage talking about their lives. Um, yeah, just tell us how how that came to 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 fruition. Yeah, sure. Well, before I get into it, I'll just do a shameless plug and say check out wearewilding.com for any future talks. I also love the name because. This is what wilding is what we need. This yeah. is what we need to get back to. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And, that, and that's exactly why I chose the name. Um, ultimately, wilding is a, a combination or, or accumulation of various experiences that I've had. <clears throat> wilding is essentially uh, a branding and advertising agency for health and wellness with the added ingredients of we research people their behaviours, and help brands to service them in their communities. Effectively, everything that we've spoken about, but to generate experiences that generate community as well and get people more involved. So that's effectively, in a nutshell, what we do at Wilding. Um, But we thought uh, that 
a monthly talk. Now, we haven't been monthly so far. It's quite difficult to run a talk. So we aren't holding a talk in April. One of our speakers dropped out. So uh, it's a little bit tricky with a small team to, to, to constantly have talks on a, on a monthly basis. But our ambition is definitely to do that. And in May, we have great speakers, including Grace, that so do come along. Um, the, the, the idea of those talks is to, to bring people from within health and wellness and people who aren't in health and wellness to sort of cross-pollinate ideas mm. and talk about how to disrupt and, and generate new models, um, uh, new approaches, interesting ideas. We've had some really fab speakers on, on board. Uh, one of my kind of, uh, I've always really liked the work of a guy called Mark Shaler. He, he was one of the founders of the Do Lectures. He wrote a book called Do Disrupt. So he's a real expert on disruption. And he's more recently agreed to come on board in, in Wilding. So it's going to be really interesting to see what he does. He's going to host the next talk, actually. Amazing. I'm, I'm going to be away walking the Pennine Way. So I, Is that the uh, one I'm speaking at? Yeah, that's right. Oh, cool. <laughs> so Mark Shaler will be there. We've had talkers like Pippa Murray from Pippa Nut, who founded Pippa Nut. We've had the, um, the Mac... Uh, uh, the Mac Twins from Gut Stuff, and, and I love their work. We've had speakers from Willie's Organic, the Apple Cider Vinegar brand. And going forward, you know, we've got really interesting speakers. Um, so the next one, we've got a doctor, Dr. Gemma Newman from At Plant Power Doctor, who um, is going to be talking about how plant power um, diets can, can enhance our health. Um, she's a GP as well, so it's really interesting. But Wilding is all about um, bringing people together to talk about how we can do health and wellness differently. Mm. Because... Why do you think we need to do it differently? Well, as I said, I think that much of the the way that we do health at the moment in the kind of the blue box of the NHS is quite... It, it, it's quite business as usual. It, it's done the way that it's always been done. It's quite science-driven, and that is important. But there are there is room for other things. Mm. So we'd like to drive that curve of change um, and influence how health and wellness is done more broadly by by bringing these innovative and exciting speakers on. Yeah. And we also share those videos on our website for everyone to see because we yeah. want it to be free and open platform. If anyone recommends any speakers would like to come and talk with us, come and let us know as well. So what can we learn from someone's eating habits then? Like going back to this idea of we are all obsessed with each other and at the mm. moment there's a huge focus on food, especially with the vegan movement really taking taking over from a fantastic planetary angle, but also uh, a lot from a health mm. angle as well. Yeah, what from mm. your point of view, what, what can we learn about someone by, by what they eat and how they approach food? So I think that people treat food in different ways. And therefore, they have a different experience as a result. Um, I think that the rituals that we have around food differ around the world. So there are so-called blue zones and, and how people consume certain foods, Mediterranean diets. But those have rituals and, 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 and um, communities that happen as well. Mm. So perhaps in the Mediterranean, you'd be, you'd be more likely to eat. So I've experienced or understood people eat a Mediterranean diet with family over yeah. a longer period of time, connecting and conversing, taking longer time to digest and so on. And, and I think that these, um, you know, compared to how we are in the West, we're exceptionally busy. Mm. People will uh, smash a sandwich from prep on the yeah, tube on the way say, to the next appointment. I think Londoners are we're a category <laughs> in our own, to Absolutely. be honest. You know, and I think the rest of Britain um as well and, and, and perhaps in America, you know, we, we tend to consume food quite quickly, not always with everyone around the table, perhaps on our own, between things, on the go, not stopping. I think the 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 experience there is a rushed one, mm. and therefore food is seen as something that needs to fill the hole, the hunger, mm. um, and, and less about um, purely as fuel. Fuel, exactly, yeah. And I think that, but but on top of that, we as people 
are also so distracted in the West and so busy um, that we we aren't really present to our own experiences as much, which is why the, the movement of mindfulness has been so successful. It's captured people's imaginations because we are busy and not being present and mindful. And I think as a result, in my understanding, some of the work that I've done, food gets sweeter, food gets spicier, um, food gets more available or, or perhaps more valuable because we want to feel stuff. We might be on the move, but if it gives us a quick hit of feeling, so interesting. we can we, we get something for our money, more bang mm. for our buck, because it's like quick smash that thing in between, it's fuel, but wow, that was spicy, I got something from that. Mm. Whereas in other cultures, we, we may experience more subtle flavours or, or slower cooking or slower eating, and as a result, kind of have more of a slower experience with things. But as we're more distracted, we kind of want things to... To, to, to kind of impact us quicker. I think that um, the, you know, if you were to compare that um, to, you know, mental health as well, there's, you know, so much, we know now that so much of our, um, of what we eat impacts our gut flora. Yeah. And what we eat. Hell yes. <laughs> and what we eat therefore Been impacts there. our mental health. But it's, it's a really interesting cycle. The better we eat, the better we feel. Mm. And that's it. That's been my experience as well. And the worse we eat, the worse we feel. So it's the chain of eating yeah. more badly. Mm. And the better we feel, we're eating better. However, w- one thing I would like to ask you then is why when we want to feel good and we want to feel like we're treating ourselves and like having a treat and doing something naughty, do we go for those high sugar, high processed foods? Oh, let's get a takeaway yeah. pizza and sit on the sofa. Or, oh my gosh. Yeah. Like I did so well at work today. I'm yeah. going to eat loads of chocolate or well, what I think, is it about yeah, that? I, I did some work around this for a few different brands. Um, around less sweets and alternative treats or permissible treats. Yeah. I, and I think that um, what I found was, A, it's it's bedded in from day one, that as a child, so my experience... But that reward. Yeah, reward. Mm. So action reward thing. Here's a, here's a sweetie, or it's Christmas, here's a chocolate box, or it's Easter, have a chocolate egg, or... I know. You know, and it goes Easter. on and on and on. And and look, I, hands up, I'm I'm really conditioned to rewarding myself yeah, with... Yeah, me too. You know, some years ago, I removed drink alcohol from my life. I don't, I don't drink. So my reward now sometimes is maybe a slice of carrot cake, mm. sometimes more than one slice of carrot cake, and that's not always the best. But I know that I feel that I live as a part of a culture that that rewards you you work hard you get a reward yeah and and those things are obviously bigger but it happens day to day as well and it's like here's a thing that we should have now people are in a bit of a paradox those that are looking more uh, um, healthier lifestyles still want to smash a bag of buttons Mm. or, or, or or something sweet and they want day to day to be helped with products that are available to to kind of be more healthy in yeah. sort of readily available snacks that you can grab off the shelf. Um, but you know, in the people that I spoke to, still want a really sugary drink if they if they had a burger, but then they really want day to day to just drink a, a sugar free mineral flavored water, for example. Mm. I think that um, I think that we're we're a kaleidoscope, and and it, and I think it's difficult to pin ourselves to just being one way yeah and actually when we do that we beat ourselves up when we do have a treat Mm. and then just have a load more because we've crossed that line anyway yeah um i think balance is a really important thing i've really struggled with balance but it is something to strive strive towards and i think that in my work and understanding people we're all sort of struggling for balance and i think the messages are you must look like this 
but look, here's a special offer for this food. Mm. You know, so we, we're in really mixed messages. And the reason I'm talking so much about messages is because that's why I founded Wilding, to um, to kind of put this balance right a little bit. In health and wellness, let's use the tools that, 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 that big advertisers and agencies use to sell us stuff. You know, we get teary-eyed. In a positive way. In a positive way. We get teary-eyed about the John Lewis ad at Christmas. Well, why not get teary-eyed about living longer? Why not yeah. get teary-eyed about um, being able to find more balance in our life or being happy about what we look like regardless of what our life is? Mm. That's really, I think, a really powerful message. And if Wilding can achieve that, then I think we'll all be in such a better place. Yeah. Um, I certainly find that I get into quite a... If I'm... It's yeah, like you're saying, it's it's like a kaleidoscope and it's like a spiral as well. If you're If you're being healthy and you're doing well, it's much easier to carry mm. on being like that. If as soon as you start that kind of um, reward dopamine hit cycle, up and down cycle, it's really hard to break yeah. out of it. Yeah. Just to something as simple as like, why do I feel like I always need to eat something sweet after my supper? I'm yeah. full. I yeah. could just I could just actually not have anything. <laughs> yeah. But it's like we're trained to think, oh no, you know, now I need something sweet because yeah. I finished my meal and like, well done me for finishing all my peas and mm. now I can have my pudding. <laughs> and it's so readily available. Any supermarket you walk into, you're just instantly hit with huge amounts of choice more healthy less healthy yeah. but but it's all there as if it's part of your it, it, as if it's part of your kind of like five a day you know yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. it's fully there in your face yeah. um yeah so moving on from food and looking at more kind of how we look after ourselves now mm. um i think that is increasing more and more as well yeah. what can we learn from people um looking at the ways that they look after themselves yeah, I I think that the... Um, because, sorry to butt go in on. again, um, but for me personally, I don't actually think it is looking after yourself when you're slaving away at the gym mm. six days a week, doing a two-hour HIIT workout and then doing, pulling yourself back there the next day. I don't think that's... I, I don't think that's responsible. I don't mm. think that's the way to get the best out of your body. And yet we live in this culture where we assume that that is the pinnacle of like peak wellness. I'm with you 100%. And, and it's kind of something that I alluded to earlier is about that this sort of image-led health yeah. isn't, doesn't always um, lead to it or, or is conducive to positive wellness, mental wellness. And I think that the, the so much of our um, physical um, health comes from mental wellness and mental well-being. Mm. I think that requires, you know, finding the things that help you with processing what it means to be a human, right? It's really confusing. What are we? Mm. You know, I, I get I often get lost in a kind of an existential chasm about yeah, who we are. Me too. And you know, why are we here and what you know, and I have to sort of get out of that sometimes and I often find that that space in nature. We are driven by um Image, I can definitely hand on heart say that that's that's the case. We we live in a bit of a a world of image of image consciousness, but I don't always think that the conversations that we have around mental health or mental wellness exist in a more holistic way. So, for example, it's all well and good that we talk about the mental well being of people, but if we're at work, we I don't find or hear many people ringing up going, "Hey, 
my mental health isn't great today. I need a day off. No. In the same way that you could say, hey, I have flu today. You, you'd more likely make up a reason. Yeah. Like, oh, I've, I've got a cough yeah, or something. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. So, so what, what I think we can learn from the, the sort of the trends about where we are now, it's good that we're having conversations more about mental health, but I don't think that the, the workplaces are starting to recognise that it's just as important as physical health. Mm. Um, I also think that we... Um, you know, need to understand more about what it means to be in communication with our emotions and and how we do that. It's unique for everyone. So I've personally experienced anything from, um, you know, men's groups or therapy or the shamanic journeying or, um, you know, talking more and being lucky to have friends around me who can mm-hmm. really have deep and connected conversations. Um, and I think it's, you know, it, it's time that we, we look to understand how that is and, and what that means for, for us more practically. Mm, okay. Gosh, this is all just like blowing my mind. It's so interesting. I think you, yeah, you're lucky to have this knowledge, I think. Mm, yeah. Because it means that you can take yourself out of these situations. Yeah. And understand why you're feeling a certain way, perhaps. Yeah. Whereas I think a lot of people, the education is just not there yet. hundred percent, and actually, that that's one of the things that that, that I'd written down. Um, it, it, it's about how, um, you know, education around health is one of the problems. Mm. We have education around health and food and fitness, but it seems to be more. Um, parentally or, or, or hierarchically given as, as a sort of I'm a doctor you should do and people don't resonate with those messages mm-hmm. they don't hear them in a way that makes sense to their lived experience and that's ex- again this isn't just a plug for what I do but es- essentially the passion that I have behind what I do is if we can understand people where they are in their experience, we can then communicate to people on their level. Why communicate to them as if they um, they they don't understand or they're stupid? Why mm. do we communicate to people and say, you know, um, you should do this or you should do that? Those messages don't land. People yeah. have a life that mean they're maybe too busy to hear yeah. what it is that, that they should be doing. So by understanding people and their lived experience in the here and now means we can understand the behaviours that we can help to change with them. Yeah. So the behaviour change piece for, for me is it's all about about, um, you know, so much as we've already said, you know, health and wellness is governed by science, and big data and machine learning and AI. But what we don't do is stop and understand people. The individual. The individual. Yeah. Who are you? What do you do? Why do you eat that? Why does it, like you asked me, you know, yeah. why does it feel so important to you to not eat as well that we, that we know that, mm. you know, that, that we should be eating as? So... It's understanding how they think, uh, people think and feel, what habits, rituals, behaviours they have. But it's in that observation of that behaviour that we can really learn those golden insights that we can then say, hey, look, if we positioned a message in this way, it will make more sense to people. Yeah. And and advertisers know that, right? Mm. They can sell us cars, they can sell us holidays, they can sell us clothes in that way, but there, there doesn't seem to be clever marketing, communications or advertising to support better health and that's my mission that's why i found it wild wilding to be able to do that to improve people's experiences about health and wellness amazing um gosh is it incredible i i wanted to ask you a little bit about sustainability um which is kind of a running theme through this second series of the podcast um not just from an environmental perspective but from a mental one as well a physical one you know what does it mean to like train sustainably for example what does it mean to eat sustainably but looking at the environmental impacts that we are all having on the world 
can we use ethnographic techniques mm. to to impact better change to to kind of yeah yeah I, yeah, yeah we can um again it's it's really getting into the the under the skin about why people behave the way that they do and what their motivations are i mean what's clear is we all probably would like to see the planet as it is live uh, survive longer than than it could potentially do with the trajectory that we're on yeah what is also clear is that we as humans need to uh, and are driven by providing for our our loved ones, our family, mm. ourselves. And we're also driven in a large part by more for me, please. And that's yeah. understandable because, you know, we see that there are resources that exist and we also have some of the keeping up with the Joneses. They've got a bigger house than me. Why don't I get that? Now, all of these things that we consume and want have an impact environmentally and are less sustainable. So it's about understanding, A, what people want, and why they want it, but B, the facts around sustainability, you know, the kind of the impact on sustainability going forwards and bringing those two together. Mm. And instead of, again, as with health, saying, don't do this, it's about saying, have you considered doing something slightly differently? So yeah. we're all about behavioural science, which is about understanding the the sort of... Um, experiments that have been conducted previously that we can interpret into sort of you know briefs like this and say well that that little experiment really worked what can we do to shift or nudge people to think slightly differently and therefore see their see their behaviors changing yeah okay i just wanted to ask you really randomly as you were talking about that yeah you know when you see someone just litter on the street oh my god <laughs> what do we do about that i mean because is that just an education thing or is there a fundamental part of some of our psyches that makes us just not give a shit about <laughs> the world around us? Good question. Because I think it's a, like we're all on a journey. Yeah. I definitely two years ago, maybe more longer probably because I've always I've always loved the environment and I've always loved nature. So I think I've, I've always cared about it. I've always been responsible, but it's only recently that I've become sustainable in my actions, in the way I live my life, in my in my shopping habits, mm. in my eating habits. Is it just an education thing? Are, are some people just lagging further behind? Like, what is it about people that makes them care so little about the planet that, that they would just, like, chuck a takeaway box out onto the street? Yeah, I really find that difficult, too. Um, and I think that it happens when people are disconnected from their communities and don't feel part of something. Okay. I think that it comes down to environment and, um, you know, it's that it's that kind of thing that someone drops a packet and then it turns into a tip, you yeah. know, by the end of the week because people see it, they witness it, they get bored of it and they do it themselves. Mm. And, and, and or culturally people are, you know, in a place where they aren't happy with their environment, therefore they're saying... I, it's bad enough. Here's mm. another piece. Yeah, you know um, why people do certain things. It's 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 really challenging. But I think that sometimes people are kind of protesting almost about mm. their their environment and, and how they feel about it. Um, I probably wouldn't go up to somebody to say, you know, why are you doing that? Uh, I I think that probably the greatest spiritual tool that I ever learned was in changing ourselves. We can be the greatest change for others. Okay. So rather than calling someone out on it and saying you shouldn't be doing that, it's like let's lead by example. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. 
Wow, mind blown. I urge everyone listening to go and check out wearewilding.com and they're on Instagram, they're online, the talks are up online and get involved and join the di- join the discussion Please, yeah. and join the disruption. Um, so just before we end the pod, I always ask everyone three questions. Um, and the first one is, if there's one thing you could do again in your life, what would it be? So I was on the tube on the way over here um, and I thought about that question and I thought, do you know what, hand on heart, I would train, I would have trained to become a medical doctor or a nurse. Um, I think that dedicating yourself to saving lives is the most selfless thing you can do. Apart from that, I would have used my time, of which I had 10 years at university, my spare time. Obviously, we all know at uni there's quite a bit of that. I would have set up wilding earlier. Yeah, got got in, got in there. (laughs) Do you think we are at the beginning of all of this or are we kind of like significantly midway through this wellness revolution? I think we're about probably under just under a third of the way. Okay. I, I think that things are emerging and finding their way. Yeah. And we aren't quite in that tipping point yet. I think we are with certain sections, but we, we you know, we live in London yeah. and we see one view. Yeah. Um, a lot of my work takes me around the country and around the world and, and, and not everyone is yet, but, but how, that is happening. How do you see it progressing? Like, what's the next step? I think that we, we're starting to see messages and people and broadcasters so more and more people have become more and more interested in this. Anything from mental wellness to health. So Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's work, for example, he's going mainstream on television. Mm. Russell Brand is more and more talking about wellness and yep. spiritualism. Uh, uh, you know, we, we, we're starting to see more and more of this hit and eventually we'll hit that tipping point, that Malcolm Gladwell tipping point yeah. where people see the benefit and want some of it for themselves. Incredible. Um, and what's one thing that you could change if you could? So I, I would quite passionately change the, our media in the UK. I think that it's, I think that so much unhappiness comes from the messages that we receive, mm-hmm. and that's anything from kind of you know the lack. You're not good enough. You you will feel better if you did this, or these people make us bad, or you know the constant negative messaging from our press and our media. Um, you know ju- juxtaposed around these unhealthy messages for crap food. Mm. You know you should buy this, you'll feel better. You should look like this, you'll feel better. It's constant contradictory messages. Combined with sort of a sensationalist press means that many people are really unhappy, divided, and are, and are in confrontation with one another. Okay. And finally, the podcast, as you know, is called State of Mind. What does State of Mind mean to you? I love this question because one of the best Woo-hoo! things... Yeah. <laughs> I'm doing my job right. One of, the, one of the best lessons I ever learned was you, you're as happy as you make up your mind to be. Yeah. And state of mind is a choice. So true. Now that requires work. A lot of people would argue with that though, I think. Yeah. They would say, no, it's not because X, Y and Z has happened to me in my life. So I therefore feel terrible. And that was my story for most of my life up until about six years ago. I I now get up in the morning and perform several rituals, right? That if I I didn't do, I'd still be in that headspace. Mm. My mind wakes up in the morning and says, hey, let's worry about all that stuff you did wrong. And I go, no, let's not. And he goes, we'll do it anyway, right? And so it plays all this sort of, I'm not good enough or messages or it's all going to fail. But if I stop and meditate and do some write a gratitude list and connect. Can tell us about your morning routine. Okay, so my morning, <laughs> my morning routine has been probably the single most uh, the single most successful thing that I've ever done for my life. If I get up and meditate, 
and connect with uh, my spiritual connection with whatever it is, which is actually nature for me, mm-hmm. and 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 pray to it and uh, say a few words to it effectively, like you know. Um, I don't know what's going to happen today, but I trust you. Mm. Uh, then I generally write a gratitude list, 10 things I'm grateful for. That really shifts the mind from, you know, it's not great to, you know, life's really good. Yeah. You know, I'm lucky to live in this life. Um, and then more recently, I've picked up a thing about visualization. So if I've got something today, like a podcast, mm-hmm. and later on I'm meeting a client or a potential client, I, I visualize that. And that gives me the power and the energy to go in positively with that. Mm. And today, as I... Um, did my um, my shamanic stretching, which is another thing that I've picked up as part of this course. Something came to me today that just said, you can be happy today. Yeah. That didn't come into my head the first thing when I woke up in the morning. No. Um, so that, that's sort of my morning ritual. And I think that we can harness that each day and we can turn our attention to those things. And something I heard more recently on a great podcast was um, the words that we say to ourselves are important and the, the, how we respond to struggles, because it's life, we have struggles. And this guy said, he said he stopped saying I've had a busy day and he started saying I've had a really constructive day today. Yeah. And that just shifted his it's whole like mindset. like how we all say, oh, I'm so stressed. As, yeah. if it's, as if we've like won something. Right. Like, great, you've got a medal, you're really stressed right. today, therefore you've worked really hard. No, yeah. you've, you've done well if you haven't been stressed. And also how much of your stress has come from things that you've chosen to do today. Yeah. You know, let's just get back into gratitude for what we actually do. And I think... Um, you know, state of mind is our greatest ally as well. It can also be our greatest enemy, but yeah. we really should harness it. And it's but it's actually, it's how we turn our dreams into reality. And that's mm. the most exciting thing about it. Yes. Yes. I love this episode. <laughs> Amazing. Great. Thank you, Adam. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of State of Mind. I really hope you enjoyed it as much as I did and that you found it valuable, interesting and insightful. As ever, if you did enjoy the podcast, I would love it if you could share it on your Insta stories um, and give it a five star rating on Apple iTunes because that's how the word gets out there. I will see you next week for another episode. Bye bye. Bye.